Hey friends, how's it going? This is DGS on DHP. We have a first-time guest, our friend Mark Widgery. Uh, the Widgery family joined Henson about a year ago, and Mark was trained as a physician, and he taught a class on end-of-life issues. So how should we be thinking about some of these things that we face near the end of our life or as loved ones face? So this is a, a great conversation. If I say so myself, I think you're going to really be helped by it. How do we think about things like dementia, resuscitation, all these kinds of questions? questions. Should we think about them differently at all because we believe that we're created in the image of God? Well, as a matter of fact, we should. So I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. Please, uh, if you um, are sensitive to me making fun of Brits, uh, you may not enjoy all my jokes, but uh, I just do that because I'm jealous of their accent. Mark Widgery, welcome to the Disciple Henson Podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. I think you're our first Brit on the podcast. Is that right? Michael Caine hasn't hasn't been on yet. I uh, second Brit. <laughs> Sorry, Michael Caine. <laughs> He's been here like He's 27 here years. It does, doesn't really count. Does yeah, but right? you're you're a fresh fresher off the island, um, and you're here to talk about death. I am absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's it's all about uplifting things that we bring over from the uh, typical from the UK. Brit. Always seeing the glass glass half empty. Uh, we might have to edit some of that out. Um, all right. Well, Mark, we're so glad you and Erica and your family are here at Henson. You guys have been here a year now, over a year. Just over a year, yeah. So we started coming July, August last year, and yeah, we became members in November. So yeah, it's been a real blessing for all of us, the family, definitely. I think most people listening will know you guys. You guys have integrated yourself very quickly and well into the congregation. But you want to just give us the quick snapshot of uh, like how you, quickly how you became a, a Christian and how you found yourself here in the States, how you found Henson, whatever sure. you want to share. Yeah, great. So, um, yeah, my name is Mark Widgery. I um, grew up in the UK, as is fairly obvious as soon as I opened my mouth. And um, I grew up going to a conservative evangelical church in Reading in the South UK. Both my parents were believers, and um, I heard the gospel from a very young age. It was it, there was never a time when I I didn't believe it to be truth, but it certainly was a time when I didn't believe it. Um, I wasn't a believer. I wasn't following the Lord. I think still distinctly remember actually going on a camp um, in the summer and um, just hearing the testimony of one of the, the leaders who I got to know really well, who just made it clear that this is more than just stuff that I need to know about. This is this is a relationship with the Lord, and sin is a big deal. Um, and that night, and for every night for the next six months, I asked for forgiveness and um, committed my life to the Lord. And that was at about the age of 10. I was baptized then in the church about the age of 13. Um, and uh, I still remember giving my testimony in front of church and speaking far too fast. So apologies to everybody who came to the session that we did. Um, I will aim to keep things a, a little slower this time. Well, um, they can turn the speed, they down, can turn the speed so, down. So that's, yeah. that's, that's definitely what's needed for me. Um, and yeah, since then, um, I uh, then stayed in the UK, studied uh, medicine and um uh, became a doctor and then um, during that time met my wife Erica who was originally from this part of the country we lived for the first almost 20 years of our married life in the UK um, and then for various um, changes happened um, with life back in the UK and we'd always thought about moving to Oregon mainly to be near Erica's family and in God's goodness that became possible so we sold the house in the UK and took our four girls out of their schools there and relocated permanently to the US uh, in summer of 21. Um, before we came, we'd been looking online. Um, Erica particularly was looking for a church that we could settle in. One of the blessings of the pandemic
Organic was actually having a lot of stuff available online that we could see, not just sermons, but whole services, prayer meetings. I've actually listened to this podcast a few times as well. Um, and so we, we knew quite a lot about Hinson before we came. And um, You stalked us online. Uh, we stalked you online, exactly. And um, Eric arrived here a month before I did because my green card wasn't, was being slow coming through. And I joked with her that she was going to get to know most people in that month before I even arrived. And sure enough, I arrived and, and she seemed to know half the church, which was great. Mm-hmm. And it's been a, a real blessing for us as a family, relocating, being able to live both close to family, but also just being part of the Hinson family and, um, and joining with, with you guys. So, yeah, we're really great for that um my kids are right now in the youth group and i've um, got to know a whole bunch of families and church and we're just really grateful for for the blessing that's been well we've we feel like we're the beneficiaries of god's sovereignty and bringing you here and we've got a live audience here today so we got david fisher and josh conwell so you, <laughs> you might hear them munching on halloween candy and uh and nachos um we want to talk about, we, I wasn't kidding before, we are going to talk about death. We're going to mm-hmm. talk about end-of-life issues. Yeah. You recently taught a Sunday school class in the bioethics class that uh, David and others were teaching mm-hmm. in. And uh, yeah, my wife said that was one of the most helpful Sunday school classes she's been to at Henson. And we thought this would be a good opportunity to cover some of these things here on the podcast. Um, why don't you just speak to what you've been doing in terms of your vocation and how that connects uh, to this, this topic? Sure. So I, I trained in the UK and um, went to medical school and then did the equivalent of residency in the UK, became what's called a, a GP, a general practitioner. So I'm a primary care physician uh, by background. And then for the first kind of 18 years of my working life was doing that full time. And although my, you know, statistically speaking, my over 65 patients probably represented less than fewer than 20 percent of my overall patient population I was responsible for. By the, very, by the very nature of, of medicine, I would spend at least 50% of my working life um, looking after that um, cohort of patients because they have so many more health issues. Um, and I particularly looked after a number of care homes where I'd have patients who were very physically frail, um, often very elderly, and, and quite often as well um, in care homes because of um, cognitive deficits, most commonly dementia. Hmm. And so I spent a lot of my time looking after elderly patients, talking with them and with their families, and and really managing death for my patients. And that sounds morbid, but hmm. actually I've become more and more convinced that that's a real it's a it's a necessary part of, of medicine and actually hmm. can be done very poorly and can be done well and, and I um, was sharing with the, the Sunday school class some of the sort of theological things that have helped me in my work um, and uh, that I found helpful um, for the way I treated my elderly patients and also talked with um, both family and patients about the end of life because we don't like to think about it and talk about it, but it is the ultimate statistic. And um, hmm. and I think quite often it, it can um, be something that, because it doesn't get talked about, actually can be handled quite poorly. So talk a little bit about how your theology, so you're, you know, you're going into, um, you know, your workday, your profession with a theological framework for death. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that prepare you um, for, for your work? Which uh, I, I'm sure at times was depressing, discouraging, but like, you know, like all work is, but in a very, yeah. maybe more intense way. And you're dealing with ultimate issues here. So can you talk about how your theology shaped your work? Yeah. There are a number of ways I, I think that that does. I think the, the first one is just that we recognize that scripturally death feels 
unnatural. You know, we read um, somewhere like you know Romans eight: the creation was subject to futility, not mm. willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. And and Paul then talks about the creation groaning and, and that sense that death feels unnatural to us. And I, I'd see that with with family, particularly as they as they anticipated losing loved ones. And I think there's always when I talked with unbelievers, and the majority of my patients were unbelievers, and I would very rarely get to um, uh, sort of share that experience with with fellow believers. But just contrasting that experience of seeing people in the end of their, their life and really not knowing what the future held, mm. um, but at the same time just grappling with the reality that this feels unnatural. Um, and so th- there's no question that when I saw elderly um, sometimes patients, but more commonly people I knew at church going through that process, just the difference in the way that believers approached that, not universally, but just that sense of hope. You know, we read in, in Revelation 21 is probably the most striking uh, where the Lord says, you know, I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more. It's it sounds too good to be true, and yet it simply is true, and that's what we look forward to. Mm. So I think a sense of, of of hope in death personally and for God's people. I think probably the most significant thing for me as a physician, though, and we talked about this quite a lot throughout the bioethics course, is just the theology of what it means to be made in God's image. And we use that phrase a lot. We hear it a lot. Um, and it always slightly kind of troubled me because I, I knew it was true, but I didn't quite understand, I don't think for a long time, exactly what that meant. Because we often see it in terms of function. How are we different from the animal world? Do we? Is it because we have a sense of a, a, a soul, a, an internal um, soul? Is it because we have a, a sense of morality, decision-making? And it's clear that in the image of God means that we are different from the animal world. But actually, the most helpful thing um, that I remember being taught about this that really stuck home was just God doesn't give us very much detail about that. And in a sense, that's kind of intentional, because the most important thing about being made in the image of God is simply that it's stated as fact. And I think what God's saying there is, is when he creates mankind, he says, I'm creating you in my image. Not be- you're not in my image because you have certain characteristics. You don't have certain faculties that mean you're in my image. Those are implications. But the point is that simply by virtue of being a human being, if we're identifiably human, then we are in God's image. And according to then um, later on in Genesis, um, we, we see that the image of God is in Genesis 9, 6, that uh, whoever sheds the blood of a man shall by men his blood be shed. In other words, um, the penalty for murder is is death, just death. Um, and the justification for that is because mankind is made in God's image. And so that really helped me, I think, stop seeing my patients, particularly my elderly patients, in terms of functional capacity. What can, what can you do? I mean, I'm talking basic functions of um, consciousness, cognitive function. It's very easy for us to make value judgments about ourselves and about one another on those. Mm. And I just came to the realization, God doesn't do that. Actually, my, human, my patients, regardless of their fu- capacity, whether they are a fully, uh, f- have full capacity um, adult or whether they 
had are somebody who as many of my patients had end-stage dementia had very very limited even consciousness certainly no interaction with people it's very easy as a physician to kind of see that and and to see people's value based on their function and i, I realize from god's word that isn't the case that actually simply by virtue of being a human being they are made in God's image, they remain in God's image, it doesn't matter about their function, and therefore their life has value. And I think that just changed for me as a physician being really clear about the elderly patients that I was looking after who were in those particular situations. I think it has a big impact as well on how we view the beginning of life as well, and we covered that in the class. So I think for me that theology just really helped me see the value of looking after my elderly patients, even though in many cases they may never know, they certainly couldn't say thank you because they couldn't even understand. In fact, sometimes they would think what I was doing was hurting them. Hmm. Um, and, and that's really hard as, as family members to see that and as, as a physician. But it made me, I, I think, see my patients through the Lord's eyes as purely and simply as a human being, being made in God's image and therefore valuable. And that, that I found really helpful. So because of that theological truth that we're all created in the image of God, let's like apply that to some of the issues that you would be regularly facing and that many of our mm -hmm. members have faced with loved ones. Um, should we therefore do everything in our power to keep people alive? So I, I think that that's an interesting question. And I think the answer is it, it depends ultimately. So I think none of us, I, this is all about intent. So can we ever, do we have the justification scripturally to actively go ahead and end a life? I think the answer is no. And we're very clear um, that human life is sacred. But are we all obliged individually to take upon ourselves every single possible medical intervention to keep us alive well I, I think we all have autonomy i think we can all make decisions about that and the older we are the more physically frail we are and certainly the more uh, cognitively impaired um, an individual is and, and therefore struggling to, to make decisions for themselves you start to ask very legitimate questions and i think one of my concerns and one of the the, the things i wanted to emphasize in the class was just that whereas we might hold a very strong theology about actively intervening in dying, by which we mean euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide or physician-assisted death, the most common phrases. Actually, that shouldn't mean that we, that we don't look at something like care planning and, and, and looking at um, elder care in a way that this is some kind of euthanasia by the back door. Because the fact is it's not, actually. And, and every Christian medic I know and every Christian organization takes the same position that euthanasia actively intervening is wrong but to say that the corollary of that being every single medical intervention that could ever be done must be done for every individual those two are actually quite different things one in one the intent is clearly to end life actually the intent when we're talking about keeping people alive is really i think boils down to two main areas the first is futility are you doing things that simply aren't going to work? And the second is harm. Are you doing things that are actually going to be causing significant harm to that individual, both physically and psychologically, actually? Hmm. So I think seeing it in those contexts of, I'm thankful for medicine. I think in the Lord's goodness, he has given us medicine. Um, it's certainly not perfect. And there's a lot of um, probably unethical things that go on within the medical world. But the alleviation of suffering has always been something that believers have focused on. And in fact, it's striking just how much of modern medicine has its historical origins led by believers to alleviate suffering. Um, and I think the key is, is to do that in a way that's appropriate to the individual. 
So when you say, should we keep people alive? You know, if you developed a severe illness and, and developed pneumonia now, you're a fit and well, or let's take me. I, I'm a reasonably fit and well man in my 40s. If I start to go downhill, I would be taken to a hospital. If I carried on going downhill, I would be put into an intensive care unit because there is a very realistic prospect that I can come out of that ca intensive care unit. But if I have a 95-year-old patient of mine, extremely frail and elderly in a care home, and they develop the same thing, must the same process be followed? Well, actually, I would argue I think it shouldn't be in many cases because what you're talking about are potential interventions that are futile. If that person put on a ventilator, are they ever going to come off it? The answer is no. Mm. And I think from a medical point of view, if you're looking at that and saying, I'm going to intervene in a way that I know is futile, I think that's actually a wrong way to go. So it's, it's, this is really nuanced and this is really hard medicine because often the most the best thing to do is very little if or nothing mm. at all mm. and that can be hard for individuals to make decisions i think it's particularly hard where somebody is incapacitated in a sense and can't make those decisions for themselves and that's when family get involved quite rightly and I, i've spent a long time talking with family members about this sort of um situation and this isn't and the way i would always talk about this sort of care planning thing is it's not saying it's not worth treating you. it's not saying you're not valuable enough to treat actually what it's saying is you are so valuable as an individual or your mum or your dad is is a valuable individual i do not want to put them and you as in family members through something at the end of their life that is futile and harmful and will achieve nothing and I would have those discussions with patients on a, on a pretty regular basis. So sorry, that was a very long answer to a general answer to a question, but does that sort of cover what, what you wanted to? Yeah, that's really helpful because um, would you, like what about the question of when or if you should resuscitate, would you work through a similar kind of framework of is it gonna is it gonna be useful viable um, is it futile I mean you're thinking through all the same kinds of things or would is there anything you would add when it comes to that particular exactly so resuscitation is, is part of that whole process so when we talked about this medically speaking we would normally talk in terms of something like what we call a ceiling of care so we talk through the process and I, I talk this through with with patients if they were able to to have that conversation um, and and also with family and and say. You know, look, here's where the process is. If they had a very clear um, terminal condition, let's say somebody's got severe end-stage bowel cancer with liver metastases um, and widespread disease, what I would say to them is, is that we're not going to change the trajectory here. Any intervention mm. that is made here is not going to change the outcome. Mm. And the focus is for that individual... Um, and I'd say to them is is to deal with symptoms. Hmm. So and and that's the right thing to do. So this isn't about saying I'm not going to treat you. What this is about saying is I'm not going to treat you prognostically. In other words, I'm not going to make a difference to the end result of this or even the timing of that particularly. And this is where people are, are sort of with untreatable cancer is the most common sort of palliative care situation. Hmm. And then you're asking the question about you know where do you want to be when that endpoint comes? Now some people would choose hospice sort of um, a hospice location uh, a lot of people want to be at home and then if people ask about resuscitation the, the answer at that point is really well do you want to die peacefully at home or do you want to die in a resuscitation room 
surrounded by lots of people with broken ribs. And that sounds harsh, mm. but actually that's the reality because mm. those are the two choices. Mm. We know that resuscitation is, is a, um, even in, the, in hospital where it happens very quickly, um, has a very low success rate. And if you have a process that is irreversible going on, then intervening at that point to try and restart a heart that has stopped because it has reached the end of its natural life mm. is a very inappropriate thing to do. Mm. Um, so for most of my um, elderly patients, let's say, who are, who are in a care home, though, I would have those discussions with them. And it really is then that, that quite stark choice. Um, so don't get me wrong, I've seen situations that I had a friend of mine who has a, a very severe... Um, genetic condition and was shocked when she went into hospital and she had a do not resuscitate order put against her in her mid-20s. Now, that was done medically without her input. It can be done poorly. Hmm. But my main reflection on, on care of my elderly patients is that the main issue is not not intervening enough. Actually, the main issue is intervening too much. Hmm. I would often say to my patients and my family, my job is to keep me and people like me as far away from you as possible. Because the last thing you need for the last final, you know, um, weeks, months of your life is to spend lots of time in hospital with doctors having investigations done. Mm. That's because those things are going to be futile in, for many of my patients. Um, and that's just, that's inappropriate. So when it comes to resuscitation, it's it's not an absolute thing, um, but there are clearly lots of situations that are going to be futile and are going to end up with a very uh, inappropriate end to somebody's life at, in contrast to a situation which is peaceful for them and 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 well managed and so that that was for a lot of my older patients the real the real priority and some people feel very strongly one one way or another and that, that clearly that's that's part of the discussion um but certainly if we if we have an irreversible process going on to then intervene at the very end having not been intervening before that is is profoundly inappropriate i think mm. You've alluded to this now, Mark, uh, a couple times, but um, kind of to, to to move to a different aspect of, of care, um, the way that at least many in our state have understand care at the end of life is physician-assisted death or euthanasia. Um, how anything to add, kind of building on that helpful framework that you laid out for us of being created in the image of God, and you quoted Genesis 9, 6, really, really helpful principles. Anything to add from your perspective as a physician, as a Christian, as you think mm -hmm. through these things? Yeah, I mean, you know, I moved from the UK where um, there has never been legal physician-assisted death of, of any sort. Um, and I was very thankful that that was just never part of the equation with my patients ever. Um, I was never asked that question um, personally as a physician. Um, I think from a from a theolog from a scriptural point of view, I alluded to early, earlier that we are told you shall not murder, mm -hmm. um, and take the intentional taking of life, whether that's intentional taking of our own life or, excuse me. Um, the intentionally helping somebody else to end their life, I think within the ethical sphere, with biblically, is equivalent. That they're, they're essentially the same thing. That's really good. But but I think I and it kind of is similar with with the abortion debate. I think we need to be careful not to kind of demonize people and see where that comes from. And right. it, it does come from a genuine point of compassion. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there are really as believe well there are two main arguments to, to go against that the first is what we just said the, the, the biblical principle which is just absolute but at the same time then saying 
well, people are made in God's image and alleviating suffering is the focus here. And most palliative care doctors that I know are massively against physio-assisted death. And so are all of the, the major um, palliative care organizations because they think it denies people, it denies the reality that we can, thankfully, with medicine, manage the vast, vast majority of end-of-life significant distress, pain and distress. Hmm. What I think is really interesting is that unlike the abortion debate, we as believers are actually on the same page as almost every um, major um, sort of medical institution, even in the US, actually. There are, there are none of them that are for physician-assisted death. All of them are either strongly against it or kind of sitting on the fence. And one of the main secular arguments against this intervention is that while you can see the, 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 the desire for that in some individuals with intractable uh, disease. The main concern is just the the creep that happens. And if you look at even just the stats from 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 Oregon, one of the major reasons why people go ahead with physician-assisted death is not to do with the uh, the concern about pain or distress. It's actually about being a burden to others, being a burden to family and friends, and in some cases a burden to wider society. Mm. And as soon as you have elderly patients, and I would see this as a physician all the time, particularly in the UK, because the whole sort of you know, it, it's a stereotype, but it's true. They're kind of, you know, stiff upper lip, just keep going on. Mm. Um, I don't want to be a burden to others. And the reality is that when we're older, we do become, and I, I don't want to use the word burden in advisory, but we, we become dependent on others. And for, for individuals who have been sort of proudly independent their whole life, that's a hard place to be. Mm. And so if you add in the possibility of, well, you can spend the next few years being an increasing burden on your family, or you have this option. You have this option to bring about an end to your life actively. You suddenly start muddying the water. And all of a sudden, people who would never have considered that in the first place start thinking about that. When you start adding in, as you do in this country, in a way that really isn't in the, in the UK as well, the financial implication of that, both medically and in terms of care, you have a, a potential situation where people who would never have considered that in the first place start thinking they need to do that because that's the right thing to do. And that's the real danger. That, that I think, is a really powerful secular argument against physician-assisted death. And, and the, the numbers that, that I've seen from Oregon obviously holds the dubious um, position of having had this law in place for more than a decade longer than any other state in the US. Um, and the data bears this out, um, that a significant proportion of individuals who choose to go through physician-assisted death actually do so because of fear of being a burden to family and friends. And that's just a really dangerous place to be because that is coming from them. They are making that decision. They are independently saying, I want to do this. But the underlying reason for that is nothing to do with their own personal experience, but all to do with their impact on others. And I just think that's a really dangerous place to be societally. And um, and it's the, one of the main reasons why so many secular medical organizations remain very opposed to physician-assisted death. Mark, this is uh, not only helpful as, you know, on this particular issue, but you're giving us a framework and how to think through other end of life issues. But uh, for the sake of time, let's do a lightning round and sit, give us a few thoughts as you've as you built this kind of framework of being created in the image of God, understanding that death is unnatural, um, uh, particularly what you were saying there with physician assisted death uh, really, I think, will bear on how we think about some of these things. But um, 
well, this will this is going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, but just any anything to say on caring for those with dementia. This is something that many in our congregation, we probably all know someone who's caring for someone who has dementia or is in early stages. Um, what do you have any recommendations and how to think through this, how to sure. care for? I think the, the first thing to say is that most of the the, the main distress that I've seen uh, and difficulty of caring for elderly relatives has come about not because of physical frailty, but because of cognitive decline as part of the dementia process. Mm. And I, I don't say that to, to people to kind of discourage them about it, but just to be realistic about this is not somebody becoming just slightly forgetful. That is often how things start. But it is a, a degenerative condition True dementia is a degenerative condition of the brain, which affects all brain function. And um, one of the things I've really noticed is um, families at the beginning of this being very, very uh, dogmatic about how they will or won't care for a, a, a member of their family. And um, and often I've seen that get in the way of, of what care really is needed. I've seen some really unsafe situations where people are in their own home. Mm. I've seen some really unsafe situations where the the sort of middle part of um, of cognitive decline often has significant personality change. I've seen patients of mine, uh, I had one patient of mine who, according to his wife, had always been a very mild-mannered guy and um, had never done anything violent, actually become really quite violent and unpredictable as part of his decline. I've seen other situations where particularly frontal lobe, what's called disinhibition, has um, uh, exposed very significant sexual um, uh, sort of appetites and um, within some of my elderly patients. These are just examples of a situation where you get cognitive decline that has much more than a, a, just a memory uh, function. And so I think being realistic about that and being aware that actually we can cover and I've seen patients family do this for their um, relatives cover for them um, in wanting particularly to, to stay at home most of the patients that I looked after in care homes were there not because of physical frailty but because of cognitive decline to the point where they were unsafe in an environment that wasn't um, well controlled so I think it, it's not to say that this is an absolute thing that this is the diagnosis because the process of that and the specific type of dementia um, can often be it varies but I think um, not underestimating the impact that's going to have on the end of the, the, the final years of somebody's life. It is a deeply distressing thing. And watching, you know, I would have family members in tears when, particularly when they got to the point they weren't recognized by their own, typically mother mm -hmm. or father. It's, mm -hmm. it's a really distressing thing. And when you see that, you just, you look forward to a new heavens and a new earth where there isn't going to be any cognitive decline. Um, I don't know if that answers the question particularly. I think just I would try and be realistic with my patients when the that diagnosis happened and to get support and and measures to help safety in early. Mm. The earlier you do that, the better. I'd much rather have my patients set up in a way um, that was safe before it was needed than dealing with a crisis. That's actually a really poor way to, to get things in place. So that's that's kind of um, where where things are, and and actually, I, I, then to see it as a appropriately see it as a terminal diagnosis. This isn't that there is what we call mild cognitive impairment, which which is our sort of stereotype, slightly forgetful older person, but that doesn't progress. True progressive dementia is a terminal disease and does eventually lead to the the end of somebody's life. And and seeing it in those terms, I think 
helps family just with that expectation of where this is going. It's a it's a very slow process for mm. the most part, but that is the direction it's going in. And and just that transitions well to my final question, which is, um, how should we even now be thinking about end of life planning, even if we're maybe not in that stage? Is there any steps that you would recommend, any conversations that are worth having before we're facing a point of crisis or um, a diagnosis or illness? I think when what I found really helpful as a physician is when there was so if if you're physically frail and you're 85 90 95 years old i can still talk with you and you're cognitively intact and i can ask you what your desires are and most of my really elderly patients would say you know i talked about resuscitation they look at me like i'm crazy and like of course i don't want you to jump up down on my chest you know just let me go peacefully would be the phrase that i was given Mm. lots of times so where somebody maintains that obviously family is still involved but that's relatively straightforward with those conversations i think the most difficult thing is where there's grayness there's uncertainty somebody has lost the ability to to meaningfully take in information process it and give you an answer and then family get involved particularly then when family get involved and do not agree between themselves about how things should proceed mm. that's really difficult actually mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. hard mm-hmm. um and so i think where there is an early diagnosis of dementia i think that the key thing is it is not particularly putting in a kind of list of this is what I want, this is what I don't want, because it's very difficult to predict exactly what's even going to be available. Right. But actually having that discussion to say, okay, you know, early in the early stages of that, if if these things do deteriorate, how do you want us to, to do that? And it doesn't need to be, I want this and I don't want that. It's It's focusing on someone's priorities. And if somebody says, do you know what? I just want to stay alive um, to be able to see my grandchild get married. That's, that's the key thing. Or actually, I... I don't want you to intervene. I don't want to end up in ICU. I, I want you to um, to let me go peacefully. Or a particular issue that somebody has. Uh, there was a book that I, I recommended called Between Life and Death, which is written by a, um, a, a physician, US-based physician, who's done a lot of end-of-life care. Um, she describes it as a gospel-centered guide to end-of-life medical care. I think it's really helpful. Mm. Um, and she counsels, and I, and I think I agree with her, against a sort of very formalized thing happening until you really know what the end-of-life situation is going to be. So I think having those conversations early is is helpful. And then talking it through with typically a primary care physician, like the job I, I was doing would be is helpful as well. And it's not that you're making absolute decisions. I will do this. I won't do this. What you're saying is these are my priorities and this is how I would like the end of my life to be. Mm. And then that then, I think what it does is it, it relieves some of the stress from family when the, those things are reached to be able to, to, to be consistent with your own wishes earlier on. That's great. Uh, Mark, this has all been so helpful. Uh, the time has flown by. I think the the masses will be clamoring for a sequel because um, there's so many other things that we could talk about on this subject matter, uh, and we've packed a lot in. And th- in part, thanks to uh, the pace in which you speak. So uh, we we appreciate that. Uh, Mark, thanks for having this conversation. Thanks for teaching the class, and we're so glad that the Woodbury family is at Henson. Well, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And yeah, hope it's been helpful. And I guess just to say to um, our Henson family, you know, I I'm I am I have had a few conversations since that. But if people want to talk to me you know personally about it i'm more than happy to do that um and i I know it's a hard situation um and yeah more than happy to to be involved in those conversations if people find that helpful that's great thank you mark thanks